wouldn't have been in the great sand dunes with skis on my back nine days into a ski traverse that was going to take me 13 days. And so I had this just like flood of gratitude come over me and it allowed me to completely re-understand my perspective on that grief and pain that I had about losing all those friends. And rather than kind of mourning them and, you know, being sad that they're gone, I was like so grateful that I had them. You know, emotionally driven decision-making doesn't, doesn't really work out all that often. So I really like partners um, that can communicate things objectively, say what they're seeing, understand what that means, um, and figure out how to like weave that into our human dynamic then. This is Josh Jesperson, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. That's right, Josh. You are tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer and open snow. Visit opensnow.com to get started with a free trial and enter the discount code Avalanche Podcast at checkout to receive 30% off your first year of open snow all access. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Additional support for this episode is provided by the IPA Collective. The IPA Collective is built for snow professionals, with some of the world's best brands available in the program, such as the North Face, Osprey, Fisher Skis, Fly Low, Smith Optics, and Heli Hansen. They have over 90 brands that will help you be better equipped for your winter work while keeping you comfortable and stylish 24-7. Getting connected with the IPA Collective is a simple process that just involves a short registration at ipacollective.com. Then you send in your credentials and you're good to go. The IPA Collective is the only pro program that connects you directly with the brand so no goofing around with third-party providers. This direct relationship allows you better product availability and faster shipping. The IPA staff works seven days a week to ensure your application is reviewed and approved quickly. Find out more at theipacollective.com. Well, that escalated quickly. No surprise there. The long drought in December followed by ample Pacific moisture has created some pretty touchy scenarios out there in the snowpack i'm just looking at avalanche.org and i see a lot of red blinking polygons i think there's at least six forecast areas that have an avalanche warning in effect today on january 12th if you're out there working or playing in the snow take it slow create wide 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 margins and look out for one another. Stay safe, please. Before we get rolling here, I just wanted to give a shout out to some of the other snow and avalanche related podcasts that I've really been enjoying lately. Of course, there's the Utah Avalanche Center podcast, Benjamin Bombard and Drew Hardesty do a great job of bringing such thoughtful questions um, to the table. 
and uh, I really like that. So keep up the good work there. And then there's the San Juan Snowcast. Chris Dixon is doing a bang up job over there. I I had, I had first overlooked this podcast and and recently dove in and I've just been binging it on long drives. Um, but Chris does a great job of summarizing weekly updates of the snow conditions and avalanche conditions in the San Juan Mountains of Colorado. And then he always brings in a, a great educational component as well. And I always pick up quite a few things from his podcast. So check out the San Juan Snowcast. Great job, Chris. And then there's the Salt Lake Snowcast. It's a little bit newer on the scene. But Nick McEachern and his friends are doing a great job of discussing some of the salient topics related to the Wasatch backcountry community. So um, I've really been enjoying those as well. Thanks, Nick. I'm pretty confident you're going to enjoy this episode. I know I enjoyed having this conversation with Josh Jesperson. I bet you already know that name, Josh Jesperson. Maybe it's because he holds the record for the fastest time to snowboard all of Colorado's 14ers. Or maybe you know him as the ex-Navy SEAL turned IFMGA guide who is also an avalanche instructor. However you may know Josh, um, it's for good reason. And and it was super fun to just sit down and chat. and, And Josh was super honest with some of his answers. In putting this interview together, I kind of leaned on some of Josh's friends and and colleagues, and one of them was Michael Ackerman, or Ack, as many people know him. And so just to summarize this, uh, I'll, I'll use some of Ack's verbiage here. He says, Josh is a cyborg. They broke the mold when this mother trucker was poured out of molten steel, grit, and get her done. In my almost 50 years on this planet, I've never met a more accomplished and inspirational man. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Josh Jesperson. Welcome to the show, Josh. How's it going today? It's going good, Caleb. Thanks for having me on. I'm stoked to just have a, a fun conversation with you about snow and whatever else we talk about. Yeah, perfect. What's the weather doing in Silverton, Colorado these days? Uh, It's sunny, bluebird, warm. It just keeps being warm and sunny every day. We had like a a little bit of a winter fake out with a couple small storms, but it just keeps being San Juan blue. It's so nice out. Yeah, right on. We're recording this on November 7th um, and everybody's awaiting winter. So Josh, uh, let me just kind of take a stab at at introducing you, and then you can kind of fill in some of the blanks. Uh, Josh's current role, one of his current roles, is the Deputy Director of Operations at Silverton Avalanche School. Um, Josh has a history. He's a military vet. Um, He's a Navy SEAL, served two combat deployments overseas, um, and... Josh, a couple other tick list items here. Josh completed uh, snowboarding all of Colorado's 14ers in 138 days. Um, so record-setting accomplishment there. And he's a IFMGA guide. He's gone through the whole AMGA process to become a fully certified IFMGA guide. Um, 
and he's learned a lot along the way. So, Josh, fill in some blanks for us. Tell us what draws you to the mountains. Talk a little bit about your military background and and kind of your transition to mountain guiding and avalanche education. Yeah, thanks for that intro. You covered uh, most of the stuff that I had to say, so I don't have many blanks to fill in. (laughs) Um, I guess I'll start from the beginning, though. I I grew up in Pennsylvania. which a lot of people in the West don't realize it has a pretty vibrant ski culture. It's got the fifth most ski areas out of any state. So I started skiing when I was three years old at Tussie Mountain and pretty much grew up obsessed with sliding on snow, um, skiing and snowboarding. I started snowboarding when I was 15. I never really looked back. Um, I do call myself a bi-slider these days, but I'll argue with anyone that uh, a snowboard turn in deep pow is pretty undeniably the best way to slide on snow. <laughs> Hopefully you get some hate mail about that and I can debate with those people. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I grew up in PA and then joined the military, like you said. Um, I spent six years as a Navy SEAL deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, when my service was up, I was uh, kind of just wanting to get back to skiing, snowboarding, get back to the mountains. and so. Um, I was at my FOB in Afghanistan and we were like snowed in for a month and I was looking online, seeing where I could use my GI bill to go to college. Um, that was close to a ski area. I found university of Colorado at Boulder. Um, so I went to see you as a buff for a little while. Any, any buffs out there? Um, did not finish school <laughs> because I just wanted to spend more time outside. I tried my best. I did two years. Um, of college education then started trying to make a career in mountain guiding because I just couldn't really sit in a classroom anymore. Um, but you know, as a veteran, I have the benefit of the GI bill. So I was really trying to use that benefit that I worked so hard for. Um, and one day I'll finish it. I just don't know when that will be. (laughs) Um, let's see. Yeah. And then, uh, like I said, I started, um, uh, working as a mountain guide and it was like a slow burn, slow transition for me because when I got out of the military, um, I was really interested in guiding and I wanted to do it. And this was 2012. And at that time, the AMGA accepted the GI Bill. Um, and so my plan was to do that. But like a week or two after I got out of the military, they stopped accepting the GI Bill. So, you know, that financial hurdle there. Um, kind of entered itself into my plans and put a long delay on it. So for a number of years, I was doing contract work overseas and part-time guiding, um, trying to make money, you know, because guiding in the beginning stages of that career does not pay much at all. So mm-hmm. I was trying to offset the income and uh, eventually over time, like found a way to to make it work financially and um, started diving deep on the AMGA process just because I saw like the scope of practice coming down the pipe and, and just realized if I wanted to make it a, a career, I would have to invest in myself and in my education. And I didn't finish college. So the AMGA became my, you know, my actual education. Um, so I put everything towards that and tried to make that happen. Yeah. Great. Is there, do you know if there's any talk of of reintroducing the AMGA to to accepting the GI Bill? 
Um, so I think we'll talk about it a little later, but my organization, Vogue Veterans Outdoor Advocacy Group, um, like we're going to DC beating that drum and trying our best, uh, to make it happen to where veterans will be able to use their GI Bill for non-standard, um, education and outdoor vocations, um, with the GI Bill and AMGA becoming hunting guides, fishing guides, all kinds of other stuff. Um, but it's a long process. Um, it takes a lot of logistic hours and, um, time to break through the bureaucratic hurdles that the VA has to maintain accreditation. I understand why the AMGA doesn't maintain it. Um, Vogue has had phone calls with them and, and they've expressed to us all the reasonings and the difficulties that they had faced when they did maintain it. Um, so it's going to be a bit of a battle, but I think a couple years down the road we'll have success and a veteran like me getting out of the military will ideally be able to use their GI bill for their entire AMGA education. Um, it's a big dream to have, but like, I really think we can achieve it. It's just going to take a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into a little bit more of that down the road here. Um, let's talk a little bit more about like your exit from the military and, and transition back to civilian life. And like, do you, do you still long for days back being back with the teams and, and how did leaving the military affect your mental health and sense of identity and, and has that been fulfilled by the mountain community? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, of course I miss, miss those days. Um, I miss that job. I miss the people. Um, you know, it felt like we were doing really fulfilling work. Um, sometimes in retrospect, you question that, but at the time it was like, we were all in, you know, we loved it. We loved what we were doing. We loved each other. Um, and so I missed, missed those days quite a lot. Um, but at the same time, <clears throat> I got out of the military intentionally. Um, I felt like I had served my time. I felt like I did my part. I fought in two different wars. And it was time for me to go on and do other things. It was time to go to college. It was time to get back to the mountains. Um, so I, I've, I've framed it in my head a little bit differently than other veterans, I think. And I think I had a fairly healthy transition um, in some ways, in some ways not. Um, one thing I made sure to do, though, was uh, play sports and be part of a team. Um, so when I went to CU, I joined the rugby team and I played rugby at CU the whole time I was there. And I think that was pretty critical um, to ensure that I still had some sort of like team aspect in my life where I was working together with the people alongside me, um, you know, with some objective in mind, um, <laughs> granted the objectives of fighting wars to scoring tries in a rugby match versus CSU is a totally different objective, but you know, it still gave me something to like care about and be passionate about. Um, and so that really helped with my transition for sure. Um, I think the, like the bigger thing that was hard was, uh, like dealing with a bit of a brain injury. Um, you know, when you spend six years in the SEAL teams, so you're just exposed to explosions constantly, um, internal explosions, rockets, mortars, all kinds of stuff. And it accumulates over time. And so like some of the symptoms, you know, made relationships hard or um, made tasks hard, like school tasks and stuff like that. So 
I think that was the bigger thing for me, um, was navigating that, um, immediately. And then over time, you know, it starts to set in like how many friends you lost, um, you know, how many people you, you saw get injured or killed in combat and it just sinks in over time. And you're like, wow, I'm only at that time, like 25 years old. And, you know, I can write down 10 names of good friends and their birthdays and their death days. And I can remember how they died and, and all that stuff. And it, it definitely takes a toll over time. And, and you have to find ways to sort through that for sure. Um, and I guess I'm kind of rambling, but, but my ways to sort through it were the mountains, um, going outside, um, finding peace and tranquility and like being present in the mountains is how I like really helped myself get past, um, the longing for those people that I lost. Cause like I said, you know, I loved them. We loved each other. We're like a band of brothers to use a term from a TV show. Um, but we all really cared for each other. And when you lose that many people that you have, um, intense experiences with, you want them back. Um, it hurts when they're gone. So I was definitely able to go into the mountains and experience their memories, um, while I was skinning or hiking or climbing or whatever, and just think about them a lot. Um, and it got to a point where there was a pretty heavy longing at times, you know, um, we would get in this habit of, you know, having beers on their death days and celebrating, um, them and their lives that turned into, uh, me getting a DUI one night, which was terrible, you know, not an experience that I want anyone to have. And it was a big learning for me because I woke up the next day and I was like, these dudes wouldn't want to celebrate this way. Like they wouldn't be that stoked on me getting a DUI because I was drinking for their memory. I need to change that. I need to flip the switch and remember them in a completely different way. Um, and so I like fully imbibed on the mountains and going into the mountains on their death days and doing something that they would absolutely want to be with me for on those days. Um, and I would start like skiing certain objectives or going on really long tours and traverses. Um, and it allowed this, this feeling to start culminating in me, um, this feeling of like remembrance and happiness when I'd remember them instead of, you know, just kind of being sad that they're gone. And it got to a point where I was kind of like, I need to take this feeling and explore it as deeply as I possibly can, because if I can like crack this nut of whatever this feeling is, perhaps it can change my, my perspective, um, on that time and those people. And so I decided to, with another um, buddy of mine who was also a Navy SEAL, um, who also lost a bunch of buddies. We decided to ski traverse an entire mountain range, um, and just put ourselves out there and experience the mountains in the rawest form and, and push ourselves to our total limits. And we ski traversed the entire Sangre de Cristo mountain range, um, from Salida all the way down to the Southern end, um, in Fort Garland. And it took us 13 days. It was a hundred miles and it was one hell of an experience. We ran out of food like multiple times. Um, we 
had a cache of food in the great sand dunes. And let me tell you what, man, being calorically deficient nine days into a ski traverse, walking through the great sand dunes with skis on your back, your mind travels some places. (laughs) And where it traveled for me in that moment was a realization that if I hadn't had been in the military and I hadn't had these incredibly close friendships with these people that are gone and passed away in combat, I wouldn't have been in that place. I wouldn't have been in the Great Sand Dunes with skis on my back nine days into a ski traverse that was going to take me 13 days. And so I had this just like flood of gratitude come over me. And it allowed me to completely re-understand my perspective on that grief and pain that I had about losing all those friends. And rather than kind of mourning them and, you know, being sad that they're gone, I was like so grateful that I had them. Um, and it just, it really allowed me to like reshape my perspective and, and be so much more grateful for like a lot of things and everything I had in life. So, um, that was a pretty long answer to your question, but that's, that's kind of the story. That's like the transition and what the mountains did for me and, and how diving into what they were doing for me allowed them to completely reshape my perspective of my past and my dead friends. Yeah. And I'm sure you're not alone in in the sentiments of of kind of reintegration into civilian life and and some of the things that come along with that for veterans, you know, and and you know, it's a nice alternative to maybe traditional help where a veteran goes to seek out help and they're offered a pill to make them feel better. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. There's a tremendous yeah, amount totally. of therapeutic qualities of of being outside and and so again, we'll get into a little bit more about Vogue here in a little bit. Um, I'm sure in the in the teams you gained a lot of technical experience and and um, technical skills, you know, to travel in the mountains and and had an added level of of you know being in combat. But talk a little bit about how some of those technical skills of mountain travel transferred or and were recognized or not recognized when you started going through your AMGA process? Yeah, that was, you know, that was another little bit of frustration. Um, because when you're in the military, you learn all these skills, you get all these certifications, and you're told that like, hey, these skills were tr- will transfer to civilian life and you'll be able to find a career. And, you know, obviously many skills of a Navy SEAL do not transfer to civilian life, like blowing stuff up, jumping out of planes, diving, like all that. It doesn't totally transfer, but um, I was what you would call the lead climber for my team. And so I went to a bunch of schools. I instructed um, at the uh, uh, 10th Mountain Locker. I taught senior mountaineering courses um, and I taught the guys at my team how to climb and stuff like that. And, you know, I thought I was fairly confident at it. And I had these like military certifications. Um, And then I got out of the military and nobody accepted the certifications. (laughs) And nobody accepted, you know, the fact that I had some experience in the mountains in a military setting. It was like, yeah, that doesn't really matter to us. We don't we don't care. And I'm like, oh, all right, cool. (laughs) Sweet. Um, I guess I'll just uh, have to refigure it out. (laughs) And start from scratch, <laughs> um, which like, you know, 
there's pros and cons to that. Like the main con was <clears throat> I had to do it all over, but there is also a pro like, yes, I thought I knew some things coming out of the military and I did, but it was a military perspective of it. And, you know, guiding clients through the mountains um, in, you know, small ratio, two to one, three to one is definitely much different than trying to move a platoon size element through some piece of semi-technical terrain. Um, within the military, I was definitely competent in my mountain skills. Um, but getting out, I definitely had a lot to learn and um, a lot of uh, reshaping of those skill sets and like technical systems. Um, but that being said, you know, it would have been a lot more helpful for someone to be like, Hey, you know, this stuff, here's how we're going to manipulate that skill set and turn it into something that's effective and viable in this new career. Um, <laughs> unfortunately those, those people don't really exist. <laughs> um, hopefully I can be that person now for people getting out of the military with those skill sets. Um, but that was a, that was a little challenging for sure. You know, hoping that, uh, those certifications would have some clout, but you know, they didn't really have much at all. <laughs> oh, well, we've talked in a previous conversation about just how, how, um, you were kind of positively positioned during your exams to just be like fairly stress, stress-free or maybe had less stress over yeah. your exams than some other candidates, right? Like maybe yeah. your military background had a, had a hand in that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I could be the stereotypical vet and be like, oh, I wasn't getting shot at. Um, but that obviously <laughs> makes a huge difference and makes a lot more fun. But overall, man, I, I thought all that stuff was really fun. I think taking exams is like one of the best ways to spend time in the mountains. Um, it's like a, a kind of like um, – a peer-to-peer -peer setting where you get to do your best in front of people who are at the same level as you and they can show you amazing things as well and you're traveling through some of the coolest objectives with some of the best clients you'll ever have you know mock clients and i just thought they were so fun i thought it was a total blast um when i took my first amga course it was a, a rock guide course and it was um a veteran rock guide course because AAI has figured out how to be VA accredited and they offer, um, AGC, RGC and SGC, um, on the GI bill. And so I did that and there's a couple other veterans in it. And after the first day, I remember like talking to them and being like, man, this is weird. Like, uh, they didn't like yell at us or like time us on, you know, knots or anything. And like, we didn't have to like do a morning PT or something beforehand. I was like, this is kind of soft. <laughs> and I like, I, I didn't realize I had no idea that the, the style of AMGA training would be completely different than my military version of, uh, mountain training. <laughs> um, and it was super good, super refreshing. And honestly, like, um, I, I needed it, um, because there were ways where my brain injury was affecting me and and I kind of needed to like redo some systems here and there and like wrap my head around things. So, um, but yeah, I think it must've been my military training that allowed me to have a better mindset through the whole process because a lot of candidates are incredibly stressed out, um, just kind of anxious the whole time. And 
man, I think just like take the opportunity to realize that you're going to have a total blast. And like I said, you're going through some amazing terrain, some of the best objectives of some of the best clients, like enjoy that, you know, i really look back on those exams and like, man, they were fun. They're super fun. Um, because I was able to, uh, put away the anxiety, the stress, and just know that I was doing my job. Um, and I was getting to do my job with other people who do the same job and we can kind of lean on each other and, um, tell each other how to do that job better. Um, so I, I saw it as like an opportunity, you know, an opportunity for a lot of growth in my field. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. I'm sure so many other people in the MGA process will like disdain my, my attitude and thoughts towards it, but that's totally how I felt. Yeah. Well, that's some really good advice. Like let's keep it all in perspective here and think about those, those exams as an opportunity to learn. Right. And, and, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of growth that can happen there. Um, yep. So Josh, talk a little bit about your experience climbing and, and snowboarding all of Colorado's 14ers. Where did that idea come from? And, and, you know, like you did that pretty fast. Um, talk about the process and, and then kind of your mindset going into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I did it in 138 days, like you said, um, still the only person to do it in a single ski season. Um, I really think that record can be taken down. So somebody get after it. It's a, it's a blast. It's a really great way to see Colorado's mountains. Um, a quick nod to those before though, the, the previous record was 361 days held by Chris Davenport. And before that, um, it was Lou Dawson. And I think it took Lou 14 years, but many of the peaks were first descents by Lou. Um, and those guys like really paved the way. Um, I couldn't have done that project without like them doing what they did and their trip reports. Um, and Ted Mann. um, also I reached out to Ted and Chris and, you know, got, got some beta from them and they're really gracious. Um, so just a nod to all that. And, um, I hope the progression continues and somebody tries to break my record. Um, but like where I got the idea, I was working for some veteran nonprofits, taking veterans outside climbing and hiking. And, um, I kind of realized while I was doing that, that these experiences were great for these veterans but they they weren't necessarily seeing other veterans excel in the outdoors or succeed in a new career in the outdoors or something like that. And so I kind of thought like they need to see that. Um, they need like kind of an example. And there was this guy who tried to take Dav's record, um, but didn't succeed at doing it. And I was just like watching his trip reports and I was thinking like I might be able to pull this off. Um, so with all that combined, I kind of like committed to the project and I was like, I want to ski all these as fast as I possibly can and, and show other veterans, like what you can do in the outdoors. Like you can have fulfillment going outside every single day. Um, and so I was doing that contracting work that I mentioned at the time. And so I worked like three months straight in the fall so I could save up a bunch of money. Um, and then came back home and on January, I think it was January 7th that year of 2017, I started the project and um, just spent that entire winter um, climbing and skiing 14ers. <laughs> and 
man, it was a total blast. Um, there's definitely a lot of challenges in that project. Um, you know, Colorado's continental snowpack makes it really hard. Um, we also have some ranges that are in rain shadows and they don't get a lot of snow. Um, so that makes it hard and a lot of kind of semi-technical peaks. There's, there's like one or two, like fairly technical peaks. Um, but you also to claim it, you have to ski a thousand continuous feet from the summit. Um, so that makes it a little challenging too. Um, and I was living in Leadville at the time, and I think that was the the best place to be based for the project because it's kind of center in the state. Granted, there's only one fourteen or north of I seventy, but Leadville is still a great central location to bounce around and um, kind of you know watch the storms, watch the snowpack, and there would be sometimes where a storm would come in a certain way, and I could go ski the, those mountains right after the storm, or I'd have to wait, but. It was all day skiing and then every night checking the weather report, checking the avalanche report and just seeing how things are going to shape up. Um, it was, it was an awesome winter. Um, I think I did 28 of the peaks solo, um, and 27 with partners or 20, 25, whatever that math is. Um, because it was really hard to find people to go do them all with me. You know, I'd text a buddy or call a buddy up on Tuesday and be like, hey, there's this storm coming in. The Sanger de Cristos are getting a bunch of snow. We need to go ski Crestone on Thursday. And they'd be like, dude, I'm working. I have a job. I can't just drop everything and go ski a 14er. <laughs> um, so some of the logistics were challenging too. Yeah. How about patience with conditions? And did you feel like you were ever trimming your margins a little thin um, just because you had that objective? Yeah. I mean, you know, objective driven skiing, certainly, um, if you have the risk tolerance for it will make you commit to thin margins at times. Um, that is kind of a reality of it. And that's why some people steer away from objective based skiing. And I fully understand, um, that sentiment, um, the patience thing definitely came into play a lot. I think there were 16 peaks that I had to go back for a second time. Um, and one peak I had to go back for three times. Um, and that was either because they didn't have snow all the way to the summit, or I would try to ski that peak that day. And, um, the conditions would not allow a descent that gave me confidence that I wouldn't cause an avalanche or have some type of event happen. Um, and I think, yeah, yeah, it was about 16 peaks. So I definitely had to practice patience um, because when you're trying to ski 54 peaks as fast as you can, going back for a second time on 16 of them, that eats a lot of time. Um, and one of the most frustrating big things was uh, the only peak that I had to go back for three times, and people who are familiar with Colorado's 14ers will laugh at this, was Mount Beerstadt, um, which is in the front range and it's a fairly benign 14er. But, um, each time I went the first two times, there wasn't snow to the top or there was a raging blizzard that kicked up and it would have been foolish to continue. So, um, patience was a big thing. And, and yes, I had a different risk tolerance for that project, but I still was not just, you know, throw it all to the wind and, 
ride in whatever snow conditions. I still wasn't being foolish about, um, the snowpack or the terrain I was putting myself in. So, um, patience was pretty key there to make it out of that winter. Yeah. Some of your friends, your close friends would say you have a never quit approach to life. Where would you attribute this mindset coming from? Oh man. I mean, it's funny because it's not necessarily just never quit. It's also, if you're going to commit to something, be thoughtful about that thing and think it through before you commit to it. Um, I think you got to be proactive if you're going to have kind of a mindset that's like, I'm doing this. Um, you have to make sure that it is something that's doable. Um, you have to make sure it's within your physical boundaries. Um, the 14 years I had to make sure I had enough money that I could, uh, eat all winter and not only eat, like eat a lot every single day and have gas to drive around. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's twofold. It's like, you got to be thoughtful and proactive with everything on the front end that then allows you, uh, the bandwidth and the means to not quit on something. Um, yeah. And I think. Yeah, that attitude probably comes from the military. Um, you know, Navy SEAL training is is super challenging. Um, and if you can make it through that, you can you can definitely make it through a lot of things in life. So that was a big factor for sure. And honestly, um my mom is a pretty pretty hardcore lady. Um she's been through a ton in her life and um I really respect the hell out of her and everything she's done and I definitely gained a lot of strength from, from her. Um, it took me a while in life to realize that you definitely don't realize those things about your parents when you're a teenager. Um, it takes a little bit of maturity to look back and be like, Oh, wow. Um, that person that raised me is actually super resilient and, um, I'm here because of them. So I got to give a lot of credit to her too. Yeah. Josh, sometimes it's okay to quit to turn around in the face of unexpected or less than ideal conditions, whether it's avalanche danger or snow, just snow cover, gear malfunctions. Give us an example of a time when you, not your partners, but you decided to turn around and, and call it and and talk about how that made you feel. Does, is that a failure? Is that a success? Give us an, a, an example there. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's many times, you know, like I've turned around from a ton of objectives, um, either solo or with partners or with clients. Um, there's always something to learn from that stuff. I think the biggest thing to learn is like, trust your process, um, have a process, um, a risk management process when you're going out and to terrain with objective hazards. Um, but kind of the most poignant one that's kind of sticking out in my mind is, um, this season on Denali. Um, I work up there as a mountain guide, uh, for mountain trip and this was a strange one. So I'm going to kind of reflect on it a little bit while I talk through it. But, um, I was the lead guide and I had my team and we were moving up to high camp. And as we were going up, um, the, uh, fixed lines, I started noticing I had this like weird sensation in my lower back. And I just thought it was like, um, maybe like muscle spasms from a heavy pack or whatever. And I kept going up the mountain 
and we got to the top of the ridge and it's pretty blustery conditions, but you know, that feeling was getting worse and it, it kind of felt like it was traveling. Um, but I kept ignoring it. Um, you know, as the lead guy, I had to move my team up to high camp. I had to get them out of harm's way. Um, and we kept going up and it, it started radiating up into my shoulders and it was a super strange sensation from my mid back up into my shoulders. And it felt like it was like traveling bursts, um, going up towards the ridge a little more. We got, um, towards, uh, near Washburn's thumb, which is a feature on the 16 ridge of Denali. And it felt like the sensation turned into a feeling of like air bubbles traveling up through my shoulders, up through my neck. And then when they would go by my ear, I could hear like crackling of bubbles. And I started feeling like if you grabbed a, like a, a little soda bottle and you shook it up and you cracked the lid, you know, all those bubbles just kind of fizz up to the top. That's what I started feeling like. And it got to a point where I had to stop my team fully on the 16 ridge. And I had to make a decision that like, I have no idea what's happening with my body right now. But if I were to continue up to high camp with this weather coming in, there's a chance things could go really, really bad. Um, because I had no idea what was actually going on. <clears throat> and I couldn't be stuck up at high camp if it was something incredibly serious. So I had to stop my team, get my second guide. I had to tell him like, hey, you have to take the team to high camp. Because at this time... It was better to take the team to high camp than to take them back down. And I had to pass my team off to him and he did an amazing job getting the team up to high camp. And I had to run down the mountain, uh, down to the NPS to see what was happening with me. Um, and it was kind of like, it was a really hard thing to do to commit to that, to commit to sending my team on and me going down because of some incredibly strange medical thing that was happening to me. I had no idea what was going on. Um, but because of my diving background, um, there's a, a phenomenon in um, a certain dive injury called Rice Krispies where you have bubbles kind of under your skin and they kind of crackle. And that's what it felt like to me. So I felt like it was serious, whatever it was. Um, so I went down, got checked out at NPS. They couldn't find anything at the time. It wasn't HAPE or HACE or altitude related. They had no idea what was going on, um, but I couldn't go back up to my team. Um, I had to evacuate the mountain myself. Um, and I had another client that was turning around that I had to get him off the mountain too. So we started descending. We get down to Cahilton Pass. We got caught in a raging blizzard, had to emergency bivy, um, woke up the next day, get down to camp, fly out, um, start talking to our doctor. Um, he has no idea what it is, but he has some theories. I go get x-rays, um, and CAT scans. They couldn't figure out what it was, but the best guess is that it was a, um, spontaneous pneumothorax, which happens to mostly teenage boys, tall, lanky teenage boys. You just have gas kind of escape your lungs. Um, and I'm tall and lanky, but you know, I'm 37 now. I'm not a teenager. So it's kind of weird. And they still don't know what happened, um, but that's the best guess. A spontaneous pneumothorax, not altitude-related, just completely happenstance that it happened at like 16,500 feet as I was moving to high camp. 
Um, <laughs> and so like, you know, I'll be honest, like as a lead guide, that was super challenging to deal with. Um, it's like, you got to struggle with some confidence in yourself. Like my team is still on the mountain. I'm in Anchorage every day, like wondering how they're doing. They're pinned down by storms at high camp. They have no chance of summoning. And now the storms got so bad, they couldn't get down out of high camp. They had to stay at high camp for multiple days. And so, you know, every day I'm just like checking in on him, like trying to give the second guide advice. He's doing an amazing job. Um, mad props to him. And it was, it was pretty shitty feeling, you know, to have my team up there while I wasn't there with them. Um, you know, maybe that's part of my military background, just like wanting to be with my team. But every day it was, it was just, it sucked. Um, and then they got off and I picked them up and tell Keaton and it was all good and amazing to see all their faces. But, uh, but then I had a second expedition, <laughs> like, like five days later. Um, and so that was challenging too, to like have faith in my body and that the doctor was like, no, it was spontaneous pneumothorax. I think you're good to go back up to altitude. Um, and so went back on the mountain for a second expedition and had no problems. Um, it was all good. Um, we didn't summit due to weather, but, um, but it was all good the second trip and nothing happened. I didn't have any lingering symptoms. Um, so it was a really strange occurrence, uh, that I made the decision for myself to go down while I had to send other people up. Um, so like to your question, I think it's kind of the most extreme example of it. Um, I had to make a decision for myself while other people continued up and still don't know what, like what really happened. We think it was what we think it was, but not totally sure. And, you know, you wonder like, was it the right call to go down the mountain? I still believe it was because if I were stuck at high camp with some type of serious ailment, um, that could have been really bad. Um, so it's challenging to think through those things in a, in a personal manner, but then in an operational context where I've got people's lives in my hands, um, as a guide, um, you got to really reflect on those instances and see, think, did I make the right call? How do I learn from that lesson and take it into my guiding in the future? How do I share that story with other guides? So if they ever see something similar, they take the right actions. Um, there was a lot that came out of that. Yeah, it seems like some intuitive guidance there um, that we all have to listen to when, when th something isn't quite right, even if we don't know what that something is, right? I was just going to say, like, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, it is that intuitive guidance because I didn't know what was going on. But what I knew was it was not good. Um, and when you're in those environments, like you can't have anything not good happening, you know, um, like the, the guard does not work out. If you're like, I have a feeling of bubbles traveling up through my ears and I can hear them crackling. You know, that's not a, a green. We're going to the summit. That's a I need to get the fuck off the mountain type of situation. Right. So Josh, let's talk about like in your personal endeavors on a day off for Josh and, and you're heading out into the mountains to go, to go ride in in backcountry skiing environment, you know, who do you trust and, and what makes you trust a partner in the mountains? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I think I see this a little bit differently 
um, than most people, though. And I'll go back to the 14ers for this. I like one of the things I'm most prideful about with that project is the amount of um, new people and beginners I took on 14ers with me. Um, out of the 20, you know, five or seven peaks that I had partners for, like 15 of them, I had 15 different partners. Um, none of them, or actually, like only one of them had skied a 14er before. Um, and I think like one of them or two of them had never even backcountry skied before. And so I was like committing to taking these people out on these experiences and showing them the mountains the way I saw them while fully knowing that, you know, they didn't necessarily have the experience or the understanding that I had. Um, and I was super happy to take that on because I want to bring people in the mountains with me. Like I love the opportunity of, um, showing somebody else these amazing places, um, and having them imbibe in like the same joy and love that I have for them. Um, a bit of a conservationist. So that also, you know, helps build more allies and in, in the fight for public land and in conservation, of the environment. So I definitely, um, don't necessarily have the same thresholds for trust in my partners that I, I think a lot of other people have, um, for most days out in the mountains. Um, I'm, I'm happy to like take the reins if needed at times. Um, and you know, obviously like consult them on the decision-making and all that, but I'm very happy to do that. Um, when the objectives get more serious, then certainly I like partners who have more experience and, um, definitely good rescue skills. Um, so I think it's more of a sliding scale there. Um, and if it's a really serious objective, then obviously I want that person to be incredibly, um, competent in getting me out from under the snow. If anything were to happen like that. Um, and have that person be able to communicate the things that they're seeing. Um, and communication is kind of one of the biggest things for me. Um, you need to be able to like talk things through, um, with a super level head, um, you know, emotionally driven decision-making doesn't, doesn't really work out all that often. So I really like partners, um, that can communicate things objectively, say what they're seeing, understand what that means. Um, and figure out how to like weave that into our human dynamic then. So, so yeah, a little bit different perspective, I think. Um, but when, when the condition or when the objective definitely gets real, um, yeah, I got to have some, some trust and communication is one of the most important things to me. Yep. Well said, Josh, talk about your introduction to the Silverton avalanche school, maybe kind of speak to the culture of the school, the hit, maybe brief history, but uh, how did you get involved and how has your involvement evolved over time and, and what are your current roles at the school? Yeah, um, Silverton Avalanche School, been around for over 60 years, uh, started by Sheriff Virgil Mason in the tiny mountain hamlet of Silverton, Colorado, because he saw that uh, the townspeople were having to go get their groceries through avalanche paths. <laughs> and anytime somebody would get buried in a snow slide, it's funny, the old... Uh, mining articles from around here, they'll call them snow, snow slides. Um, but when somebody would get buried in a snow slide, he'd have to like go to the bar or the miner and, you know, recruit people to go help with the rescue. And they'd probably be a couple beers in and that'd be challenging to trust them. <laughs> um, so that's just a little bit of the history. Um, but man, I'm so 
proud and stoked to be able to work for Silverton Avalanche School. I mean, the people that we have working for us are incredible. Um, I get to work with some of the most foundational people in the snow and avalanche world. Like I get to work with Angela Hawes. You know, I get to teach pro programs with people like her and uh, Sandy Kobrick, who's been teaching avalanche courses for like 40 years. I mean, she was on the patio when they um, decided to form the A3. Um, and our pro program director, Karen Pocock, is unbelievably amazing, a encyclopedia of information. So the the people that I get to work with and the caliber is one thing that draws me to the school. Um, and I was kind of reflecting on this. Uh, the other night, one thing I loved about the military was the people and the caliber that I got to work with super high. I love that group of people and veterans always talk about how you'll never find a group of people that great again to work with. I don't want to like diminish the military and act like I've found it, but super damn close to Silverton Avalanche school. I like the people that I get to work with, I love them. They're amazing. I get to learn so much from them every single day. Um, and I, I value that like nothing else. Um, I first started working for the school, I think five or six years ago now, something like that. Um, teaching level one courses um, and uh, slugging it out in the rec one trenches of Red Mountain Pass. Um, <laughs> I did that for a number of years and uh, continue to work my way up into the pro programming. Um, and as you mentioned, I'm now the deputy director of operations for the school. Um, and I get to work in all the programs, the rec program, the pro program, um, our military program, um, everything all across the board. Um, and I think I love mountain guiding. One of the highlights of my winners though, is getting to teach pro twos. Um, that that course, that program is amazing. The curriculum is so fun. Um, and you get to see students build operations. Um, and it's a blast. Um, and I get, like, again, get to work with amazing people and get to see amazing students that bring perspectives from all over the country and um, all different backgrounds from patrollers to forecasters to guides. Um, and it's a pretty, pretty damn amazing job that I'm so lucky to have. Yeah. Speak to your involvement with SAS TAC as much as you can. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and I'll, you know, keep it fairly brief, just, um, out of respect for our customers. But, um, so SAS TAC is our, our military training program that we do. Um, and this kind of stemmed, I'd say started maybe like four years ago. Silver Avalanche School has done military training since the 80s. I think the earliest documented one is um, like 1983 up on Red Mountain Pass. It was a group of uh, PJs. And we've done them, you know, consistently throughout that time. But I asked the um, then director or executive director, Jim Donovan, um, and Ack, Michael Ackman was the deputy director, and I kind of approached them and asked them if we could revamp things. Um, not because of the way that I saw SAS doing it, but the way that I saw other guide services doing military trainings. Um, I never felt like the customer was getting solid training. I felt like a lot of times it turned into, you know, drinking or good time trips, which is, which is fine. You know, decompression is needed. Um, 
but I still had a dedication to, you know, my brothers and sisters in the military and I wanted to continue to serve them and seeing mountain trainings happen where I didn't feel like they were getting what they're paying for. Um, feel like they were just kind of getting high fives and, you know, look at how cool I am as a mountain guide. And, you know, I'll show you these cool mountain tricks that are not applicable to your job in any way, shape or form. And I'm, you know, talking to you about ice climbing or skiing, but I'm not relating it to your job and helping you understand how to avoid objective hazards while you may have enemies to fight as well. Um, and so I approached, um, Jim and act, like I said, and I wanted to revamp it. I wanted to change the way we trained, um, military units. I wanted to have more of a focus on job application. I wanted to have more of a focus on individual skill sets. Um, more of a focus on um, military risk management protocols adapted to a mountain setting. Um, and so they let me do it. They were like, yeah, we have faith in your ability to to make this happen. And so we started implementing those changes and um, the customer feedback is, is amazing is what it is. And our work in that realm has skyrocketed. Um, we're able to do it all over Colorado and, um, some trips in Alaska and other places. And I'm so proud and honored to like be able to continue to serve, um, the homies that I still have in the military, you know, um, I get to train people that I served with that are still in and it's amazing. I'm like, like honored to do that. And so any opportunity I have that, um, allows them to make better decisions while in terrain of consequence, um, you know, whether there's a, an active, enemy or they're, you know, in a, a submissive environment, but trying to keep a low signature. I'll take all those opportunities. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for letting me speak a little bit about it. Don't mean to be brief. <laughs> no, that's great. It's, it's nice to get some exposure to those programs that are sometimes under the radar for one reason or another. Right. Um, yep, but, Absolutely. Well, we're kind of on this thread, you know, a number of years ago, you started a organization called Vogue Veterans Outdoor Advocacy Group. Um, and tell us a little bit about your motivations for starting that. You've, you've kind of alluded to them, but talk about what Vogue does. Yeah, Vogue um, Veterans Outdoor Advocacy Group, V-O-A-G, not V-O-G-U-E, like the magazine title. Um, although our acronym was intentional, <laughs> um, we started in 2019 actually as a single issue organization. There was a bill that got introduced on the floor called the Accelerating Veterans Recovery Outdoors Act. Um, and what this bill mandated was that the VA study the efficacy of outdoor adjunct therapy. Um, to unpack that, it means a veteran over time could walk into the primary care provider when they're having mental health issues. And instead of just being presented that prescription pill, like you mentioned, they could also be presented a prescription pill or the choice to go on a climbing trip, skiing trip, fishing trip. Um, and so we saw the opportunity of that bill, but we also saw that it wasn't gaining any traction at all. Um, it was just sitting idle and in fact had gotten passed over by the previous Congress and reintroduced and sitting idle again. So my co-founder, Dustin Kissling and I, basically said to each other, we can't look back 10 years from now and say we didn't do every single thing in our power to get this bill passed. So we um, we started Vogue. We flew to DC, 
We knocked on every door that we could. We talked to anyone who would listen to us. Um, and while we were in meetings, it was kind of funny because some of the staffers would have a bottle of hand sanitizer and they're like, here, make sure you put some of this on your hands. There's that coronavirus going around. Little did we know a couple weeks later, um, we'd all be thrown into the pandemic and full lockdowns and shutdowns. Um, so needless to say, our bill did not get passed at that time. However, the ground game that we had started and the momentum um, that we gave it, gave at that time really helped because once the pandemic kind of slowed down and DC got back open, they remembered who we were. Um, we had more and more meetings and people were excited to engage with it. And over time we got that bill passed. Um, one thing that bill, uh, stipulated is that there would be a task force set up. And on that task force is the department of veterans affairs, Health and Human Services, Homeland Security, Department of the Interior, um, and a couple veteran service organizations, one of them being Vogue. Um, so every other month we get to go to DC, we get to sit on a task force with, um, all those departments and understand, um, how the best way will be to roll out outdoor adjunct therapy for veterans. Um, we have a, another year to make recommendations to Congress. Everything in DC moves slow, um, but there's reasoning behind that. Um, you do want to take the time and do the diligence and ensure that you're doing everything the right way, um, that all the infrastructure is put in place, um, the methods and modalities are understood, um, and that when we can actually roll this out at the VA, it will be hopefully a successful program. Um, and change the perspective of how veterans, um, are treated for their mental health. Um, and if I'm honest, I have like a, a bigger overarching goal for veterans to be a litmus test for all of society. Um, if it works at the VA, you know, why wouldn't it work for everybody in everyday life? Um, I think it would be huge if it, if it really, um, was viable. Um, I believe in it. Uh, a lot of people believe in it. Um, now we just have to kind of prove it works over time. Um, one other really cool thing about Vogue is we have what's called the Vogue Coalition. And the Vogue Coalition is about 20 different veteran service organizations, um, different nonprofits that take veterans outside in tons of different modalities, stand-up paddleboarding, fly fishing, off-roading, hunting. Um, and we're able to um, understand what's working for those groups um, and gather that data and provide better metrics and a, a diverse data set to then take to DC. Um, so we can better prove what is working, um, and how it is working. Um, and the coalition is amazing. All of those groups do awesome work and I'm so happy to be able to go to DC and advocate, uh, for this stuff on their behalf and on the behalf of all the veterans across the whole country. Yeah, that's amazing, Josh. How, are there any ways that the snow and avalanche community, maybe listeners on this show can, can help support the efforts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as, um, a veteran IFMGA guide, I think I'm one of four. Um, I think there's 190 American mountain guides right now. I think I'm only one of four or five. There's not many, right. Um, you know, and if anyone is so inclined, 
and you know a veteran who's interested in you know this profession or working on snow or working in the mountains like be that person that i was saying i didn't have earlier that is trying to tell them how to help translate their skills to this world um you know send them to me send them to vogue send them to these other organizations um i want to continue to make more veteran mountain guides um the mountains are an incredible place to transition to out of the service. The parallels between the military and the mountains are uncanny. Um, you're working in a team setting, objective driven, um, takes a lot of prep. You got to be proactive with the decision making. So similar. It's such a healthy place to be. Um, and on top of that, if we're able to have success and get outdoor therapy implemented um, as an option for a veteran going to the VA, I need to continue to build the foundation of veteran outdoor facilitators. Um, because who better to take another veteran outside to improve their mental health than somebody who's walked in those same shoes. Um, so I would love all the help, um, that anyone could give on trying to make sure there's more veterans working in the mountains. Um, I think we have a lot to bring to this space too. Um, I think sometimes I notice in mountain guiding, um, that leaders leadership is a little bit lacking. Um, maybe, uh, navigation skills, I think is one thing that could be a little more improved too. And, you know, veterans have a big skill set in those areas. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's, it's the group that I care for a lot. So I'll adv advocate for them in any way I can. Um, yeah, thanks for asking that. I have a background in wildland fire and worked on a hotshot crew for a bunch of seasons and then ended up changing locations and ended up uh, getting a job as a some overhead on a on a veterans crew here in Medford, a hand crew that was oh cool primarily veterans. But there's some cool um, there's several. I don't know. I'm, I've been kind of out of the game for a few years now, but um, there's probably more than several veterans hand crews out there um, that are oh, that's doing amazing really good work to to place vets in into you know federal positions whether it's fire or maybe that's an entry in fire that then kind of translates to something else um further down yeah. their career but it just might it might be kind of a cool parallel to kind of explore and tap into um and I, yep. i'd be more than happy oh, to dude. provide some resources to get in touch with some of those folks yeah totally and that's amazing um you know usa jobs i think uh, was putting up a lot of job applications for wildland fire um, that were kind of targeted towards veterans. It's a fulfilling thing to do. Um, and service is one of the biggest things that allows you to um, be happy in, in the place that you're in. Um, I think that's one reason why there's so many veterans um, starting nonprofits to serve other veterans, because it allows them that, that feeling of service and continuing to give back. Um, but yeah, Wildland and Structural Fire has done a great job at recruiting veterans um, to move into those career paths. And uh, that's one other thing that Vogue is kind of working on is um, allowing better career entry once you get out of the military. So when I got out of the SEAL teams, you know, you're kind of told two things. You can go get your MBA and work at a Fortune 500 company or become some CEO, um, or you can go contract um, and basically do the same job you were doing. Um, not really told about all these other careers in America, all these other amazing things you can do. 
Um, so one big thing we're trying to work on is awareness, um, for veterans that there is a career in the mountains, whether it's mountain guiding or fishing guiding or wildland fire, whatever it is, there are careers that you can transition into where you can be outside every day. Um, and then the access and, uh, the GI bill stuff that I talked about is kind of huge to help, um, get veterans into these outdoor vocations as well. So Josh Silverton Avalanche School has, um, I think what you all call some sassisms and, and I love these. Yeah. I've heard some of them from ACK before. Um, but one of them <laughs> is mother nature bats last. And I love this one. Uh, what do you think your batting average is in the mountains? <laughs> uh, that's funny. Cause it's like, um, you know, if mother nature is doing the batting, then I'm doing the pitching. So it's more like, uh, like, Hey, what's my pitching percentage? I, you know, I'm not too up on baseball terms. <laughs> I wrestled and played soccer. Um, <laughs> so I think it's more like, um, you know, if you're viewing it in that scenario, um, you know, mother nature walks up to bat and, you know, you see whatever conditions you got to decide what pitch you're going to throw. Are you going to throw a slider, a fastball? you know, whatever other pitches there are. Um, and I don't know what my, uh, my percentage would be. I think, I think, um, when I go out in the mountains and this is funny because this is like a, a thing from an old Jeremy Jones movie. Um, but I really loved what he said and when he said it, and I've kind of like tried to live this one. Um, he kind of said like, uh, it's something like he doesn't wake up every morning and see how gnarly he can get in the mountains. He wakes up every morning and sees how much fun he can have. Um, and so I kind of, I go out with that mindset. I totally do. Like when I wake up in the morning, if I don't already have some objective and I'm coming up with it, I like look at the snow. I see where the soft snow is. If I don't have any soft snow, I see where some other type of fun is, but I just wake up and see how much fun I can have every day. Um, and so with that mindset, pretty good average, super good. Um, and I think that really helps too. Um, that really helps, you know, alleviating the feeling of going out in the mountains, getting turned around and feeling like you blew it or, you know, feeling like you didn't open up some line. Um, just go have fun, wake up every day and have the most fun you possibly can. Um, because that also keeps you coming back for more. All right. Well, I'm going to pull on that thread a little bit more, you know, uh, sometimes okay, we don't, cool. oftentimes we don't get it right in the mountains. We just don't get it wrong enough. So share a story about when you didn't get it right enough. Yep. I think the the most glaring example in my mind is, um, was during my 14 years project. Um, I was skiing Maroon Peak this day and, um, the road, if, if anyone is familiar with the Elk Range, um, there's a road <clears throat> that is closed most of the winter. Um, and you know, the road eventually melts out, but it stays closed. Um, and you can bike a ways up the road. Um, so I was trying to get good snow conditions, um, a little earlier than when the road fully opens. So I biked up the road. It's, it's long, it's a committing day. Um, and you know, biking up the road, weather was great. Um, skinning up to the base of the mountain weather's still okay but there's kind of a big looming cloud over the peaks um and you know i thought like yeah this is still fine um I, there's nothing really happening here where i'm at 
Um, but I see this cloud up there and I just think that it's probably fine. I'll just go poke around and check it out. Um, but to start climbing Maroon Peak, you're just committing yourself to challenging and complex terrain, non-glaciated, but, um, you can't really hide from anything. Um, and so I'm booting up the mountain and, you know, I get to above 13,000 feet and you have to kind of traverse out above some cliffs to start then going towards the summit. And I was now in the cloud and it was actively snowing quite a bit. Um, but I still didn't see any type of instabilities. Still didn't see anything that was like really alarming. Um, but I kept going and it was like really snowing pretty intensely. Um, but what I didn't realize was that there, there was a persistent grain on the surface, um, before any of the snowfall started happening up high on the mountain. And I finally I got to a, a spot, I think at like 13,500 feet where the new snow had cohesed enough into a slab, um, to actually start creating instabilities. But by the time I realized that I was in it, um, and I was above these cliffs and, um, a slab propagated all around me on all sides. Um, so luckily for me, it was only about three inches deep, three to four inches deep. Um, because if it would have been any deeper, it would have swept me off my feet, carried me over the cliffs, would have for sure died. Um, but I was able to dig in with my ice axe and stay on the slope as it all like flowed around me and cascaded around me. Um, and that was definitely like a situation where I almost blew it. You know, I, I didn't read the signs that, um, uh, were all around me. I wasn't like reading what was happening. I didn't notice the persistent grain on the lower slopes before it got covered by the fresh snow. I didn't notice the slab starting to cohese. Um, and because I wasn't like really in tune, I was just chugging, you know, I was just booting up a mountain solo, like not really thinking about much. And that was a mistake. I, I almost blew it that day. Um, and that, that type of thing is definitely a big learning experience. Um, it's not that I was fully tuned out, but I wasn't tuned in enough. You know, I could have noticed these things. Um, I could have turned around earlier, um, and not gotten myself into kind of a situation, but then obviously I turned around and that's one of the 16 peaks that I had to go back for a second time. Hmm. Did you yeah. go back with a partner? Yeah. Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. I ended up doing that one solo, <laughs> which, you know, like it's, it's not that I'm like a big advocate for so solo mountain travel or anything. It's just. You know, when you're doing an objective like that, you have to do a lot of peak solo. Um, and I don't, um, you know, I don't like advocate for solo mountain travel. I don't, you know, it's, it's a personal thing that, that I'm okay with doing at times. And, um, I think, uh, I have a hard time when people judge other people for their, uh, their personal risk tolerance and personal decision making. Um, you know, I'd, I guess I've, kind of I'm a free thinker in that way. And, you know, I, I go do the things that I go do and I respect other people for going and doing the things that they go do. Um, and sometimes you learn lessons. Sometimes you don't make it out and that sucks. Um, but yeah, that is what it is. How has your risk tolerance, uh, changed over time or has it? You know, I, I don't necessarily know if it has. Um, I don't want to sound like callous there, but I don't know if it really has changed a ton. Um, 
it's interesting because the more, the more you learn and the more you gain competency, it's almost like the more you can get yourself into situations. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of people kind of lean on like, oh, when you don't know anything, that's when you get into situations. But, you know, the, the more complex terrain I'm able to travel through, the more I'm getting in these situations. Um, and so it's kind of a funny thing to, to deal with, like gaining confidence and confidence. I think you kind of, it's up to you personally, right? But like, uh, you can find yourself further out than you would have five years ago. Um, you can move faster. Um, you make more decisions. Um, you understand the snowpack better and you, you know, you can thread a thinner needle. Um, are any of these things good or bad? I don't know. It's just, you know, observations that, that I think, um, yeah, over time, the more, you know, that maybe, maybe the more trickier a place you can actually be in. Um, but it also allows you to make better decisions, I think, and more sound decisions and, and better understand what's actually happening around you. Um, but overall, I don't think my risk tolerance has necessarily changed much. No. How about looking to the future? You know, like when, when there's a time when maybe you aren't as physically capable of doing some of the, these things as you are now, or you have been in the past, like what does the future look like for Josh in terms of like professionally and personally as you age in the mountains and, and maybe face the reality that you can't maintain kind of the operational tempo or sustained bar of success that you've set and achieved for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I've thought about it that much. <laughs> I, I probably should. <laughs> I probably should think about that more. Um, but man, I gotta be honest, like I'm, I'm living every day for the day it is. And, and, uh, like I said, trying to have as much fun as I can every day. I think, um, the, the clients that I have that want to explore and do really cool things are my favorite clients. Um, if I have a client that is, is down to just go out in the mountains and see what we can see and have a blast rather than having an objective, um, they're the ones I really like to work with. And, um, I don't necessarily see, um, a near future where I'm changing the way that I work, um, with those types of people. Um, and I really love a high tempo of things because, you know, idle hands, like when I get bored, you know, I, I guess I'm kind of a social creature and, um, if there's like big breaks between doing things, I kind of get like lost in the sauce a little bit. And, um, I like, I need objectives. I need goals. I need things driving me forward. Um, and I don't, I don't see that changing anytime in the near future. Um, so I haven't totally thought about it a lot, if I'm honest, aging in the mountains. <laughs> um, it'll happen someday. And I think when it does, um, the best thing I can do is like, uh, transition of sport, you know, like maybe I'll do more, more boating or, uh, you know, more mountain biking or, uh, some other type of way to travel through the mountains, more hunting. You know, I, I like to hunt too. So maybe, maybe I'll dive deeper into that and, you know, go hunting in a bunch of different locations. But yeah, I'd, I'd say having a definitive answer on that is, is, uh, well, well beyond the horizon for me right now. <laughs> yeah. That's a very fair answer. Um, 
Well, Josh, it's been great having you on the show. I appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your experiences. You're an inspiration to many of us. Um, and I think that the work that you're doing with veterans groups and Vogue and, and SASTAC is super important work that kind of goes a bit unnoticed within our community. So um, I'm honored to be able to share that with the listeners and and uh, appreciate your your honest and candid responses to, to these questions and, and exploring <laughs> some of these topics with me. Yeah, man. Thank you for letting me um, give those honest answers and not sugarcoat things and, and just, you know, be me. And, and uh, thank you so much for providing an opportunity for me to speak about veterans and getting them in the mountains. Uh, <clears throat> I hope uh, everyone can see that that's kind of what's most near and dear to my heart. So Again, anyone reach out to me, any veterans out there. Um, I'd love to help you realize a new career in the mountains. Thanks so much, Caleb. Yeah, thank you, Josh. This has been a blast. Appreciate you, man. All right. See ya. Thanks for listening, everybody. I was supposed to pull uh, some winners for the Gordini sweepstakes for this episode release, but man my instagram must really suck because uh nobody entered to win a pair of awesome gloves great ski socks and a pair of awesome goggles i've been using some of this gordini stuff and i don't know i think it's great but uh maybe we'll go back to the drawing board and figure out a sweepstakes for the second half of the the season here but again if you want to win a great pair of socks, a pair of gloves of your choice from Gordini. Take a picture of you and your partners doing some avalanche rescue practice. Tag Gordini, tag the Avalanche Hour podcast, and you'll be entered to win. We'll pull the drawing as soon as there are some entries. Music on today's episode was provided by Ketza. Uh, you heard the tracks No Chances and Look. You can find more inspirational music for projects and beyond at ketza.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Check out more of his work at MikeT.com. Give us a follow on Instagram. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. It's a great way to keep up to date on the latest podcast releases. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you listen to it on. And don't forget to tell a friend about it got any feedback for us you can reach out at the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com tune into our next episode on thursday january 25th when we hop across the pond and hear from our good friend matthias valker until next time stay tuned stay safe and always have fun be careful out there see ya